Good morning. You know, I'm walking from back there to out here, books, Bibles in one hand, I guess this is a stand, music stand in the other, and I'm thinking, better be careful not to step in any panda droppings up here. <clears throat> so I'm looking, and I thought to myself, that's something they don't teach you in seminary. They don't prepare you that one day you could be speaking on a stage surrounded by pandas, rocks, and everything else. That's something that you just got to figure out for yourself. So there's uh, obviously things you have to learn along the way. Well, Pastor Mike asked me to step in while he's suffering for the Lord in Ireland um, this week and uh, continue our series on summer school. So uh, I'm not sure exactly when he's going to be wrapping this up, but summer school is going to be letting out soon. Today, he gave me the topic of psychology, because psychology is something I'm very interested in. Being a counselor, it's very near and dear to my heart. Um, And so, I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about some thoughts about psychology. The American Psychological Association defines psychology as the study of the mind and behavior. The discipline embraces all aspects of the human experience, from the functions of the brain to the actions of all nations from child development to care for the aged. In every conceivable setting from scientific research uh, centers to mental health care services, the understanding of behavior is the enterprise of psychologists. So that huge lengthy definition simply says psychology is the study of behavior, human behavior, how the mind and emotions interact. Uh, and, And also... Uh, something that a lot of secular psychologists have gotten away from over the years. Well, actually, they've never gone there. But it's kind of finally rising to the surface in terms of its significance, and that is dealing with the spiritual aspects of people that you work with in in the counseling office. And so as a Christian uh, counselor, that is very important to me. Now, it's also interesting to me that what secular psychology is really now just kind of figuring out the Bible's been talking about for thousands of years. Uh, For instance, the Bible tells us that God created us in his image. Now, I know a lot of people struggle with that one, but I happen to believe it's true. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, one of the things that, that it means is that God created us with certain core longings, certain needs that we can only be met in a relationship with him. And so when Adam and Eve were were, uh, in the garden and before the fall, they enjoyed this perfect relationship with God. And so all of these core longings, all of these core needs that they had were completely met and fulfilled in that relationship with God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, That relationship was broken, and so now they're entered into the equation, the possibility of these core longings and core needs not being met. What kind of core longings am I talking about? Well, we all have a need and a longing for unconditional love, security, understanding, purpose, significance or worth, and acceptance and belonging. Now, I don't have time to go into all of these today, obviously. I've only got an hour and a half to speak to you this morning. So there's just no way I can cram them all in. But what I do want to talk about is two very important core longings that, that uh, when we are wounded by life, and all of us have been, when some of us are wounded early in life, childhood, adolescence, and so forth, 
these two core longings that cause a lot of pain, cause a lot of, or wreak a lot of havoc, are the longing for um, belonging and acceptance and significance. So significance and belonging. So many of us today have this deficit in our souls around these two core longings, significance and belonging. When I was... uh, uh, I was going into my senior year of Bible college, so it was been 1984. I stayed in Nashville during that summer, and I wanted to play softball because back then I could actually run without falling down, and I enjoyed playing softball. But obviously, I'm away from home. I didn't have a softball team to play with. So some of my friends and I heard about this little country church that was looking for some guys from the Bible college to come and, and help them form a ball team. So we got together, we went out there. And uh, when I say this is a country church, I mean this is a country church. This church was out in the sticks, okay? I mean, I was complaining because pop-ups were coming and there was birds flying around and they said, those aren't birds, those are mosquitoes. I mean, we were out there. I was afraid I was going to get malaria. It was bad. So we uh, we go out there and, you know, we start, my buddies and I, there's about three of us, and... uh, they said, yeah, that's, yeah, come on out. We'd love to have you. Just come to church on Wednesday nights, teach a class or something. Help us out and play on the softball team. Perfect opportunity. Well, we all get out there for the very first practice. After the practice is over with, the coach, who was an interesting guy, I've never heard the term stretch out or you might jerk a muscle before. I don't know if you guys, maybe you guys have heard that. I pull a muscle, strain a muscle, tear a muscle, no, he wanted us to loosen up so we wouldn't jerk a muscle. And whatever that means, that's fine with me. So he calls us together afterwards and he says, you know, I'm thinking he's going to hand out our jerseys. He's going to give us the schedule, the kinds of things that you do in church softball. Remember, church softball, supposed to be fellowship, fun, have a good time. This is out in the middle of nowhere. We're, we play in a cow pasture for crying out loud. I mean, this is just about fun and having a good time. He gets us all together, starts going through some stuff, talking to us, and then in his southern uh, draw, which I'm fond of since my wife's from Alabama, love that southern accent, he says, he looks up at one of my friends whose name is Tommy, and it's not Tommy Swindle, by the way. Tommy was probably in grade school at that time, or wasn't even born yet, I don't know. He says, he looks up, right to Tommy, in front of all of us, and he says, Tommy, son, I'm going to have to let you go. (laughs) My friends, Brent and Brian and I, look at each other in shock, and the thought is just crossing all of our minds at the same time. There's cuts in church softball? (laughs) And then worse than that, Tommy didn't make the grade. Tommy got cut from the church softball team, and this isn't a championship quality church softball team. This is cow pasture quality church softball team. And Tommy wasn't a bad softball player at all. I don't know if the guy had a problem with him. To this day, we don't know what happened. But I'll never forget the, sh- the look of utter shock on Tommy's face because he thought, we all thought maybe it was a joke. And Tommy's standing there looking at the coach, like, and then the coach says, I'm sorry, son, we just we got to trim, this, trim our, uh, our, our lineup down a little bit and we're just going to have to let you go. 
Tommy reaches down, picks up his softball stuff. I'll never forget, this was 1984. And to this day, I'll never forget watching Tommy take his stuff and start walking to the parking lot. Brent, myself, and Brian are shocked. Like, which one of us is next? Is he going to cut us? I mean, come on. You don't do cuts in church softball. And if you do, you certainly want to do it in private, don't you think? Or you might tell the guy, you know, you're not going to get a lot of playing time because I have too many guys on the team that you still want to play. But to cut the boy, cut him, literally cuts. And Tommy got over it, by the way. Tommy's a pastor today. He's doing fine. But we used to joke about it afterwards. Hey, Tommy, remember when you got, yeah, I remember. Never mind. We, <clears throat> Hey, Brent, you ever, ever know anybody but Tommy that got cut? No, I never did. And Tommy's like, yeah, okay, I get it. But I thought to myself, after, years later when I got into the counseling thing, I thought, of my, I thought about Tommy. Numerous times when we were talking about this thing about belonging and acceptance. And I thought to myself, how many Tommies are there out there? Seriously, how many Tommies are out there who have been cut? And I mean cut to the core, cut to the quick rejected, abandoned, betrayed, hurt, abused in so many different ways. And so that's what we're talking about today. When, when our need for belonging and significance has not been met, some things start happening. We have this emotional turmoil that rises up. We begin to have feelings of worthlessness and insignificance, inadequacy, inferiority, insecurity. We feel unsafe in the world. This produces all kinds of fears, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of abandonment. And and these fears that arise from these feelings of emotional turmoil kind of bind us up and tie us up in life so that we can't really experience life to the fullest. We have some scars, we have some wounds. Now, these feelings and these fears produce certain types of behaviors, dysfunctional behaviors, ways in which people try to cope with the feelings that they have or protect themselves and they're dysfunctional the first one is called performance it's a performance orientation a performance orientation is you know i have to perform man i have to knock the ball out of the park i have to i have to uh this presentation i'm doing next week at work is going to have to impress them all and the lie or the false belief that, that is behind a performance orientation is that I have to meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. Now, am I saying that standards are bad? Absolutely not. Should we set goals and try to achieve them? Absolutely. What is bad or what is wrong, what is destructive is to say, I can't feel good about me if I don't meet them. That's a performance orientation. Greg Boyd, one of my favorite authors, said, when receiving love and affirmation depends on our performance, we know that deep down it's the external behavior that's being loved and affirmed, not our innermost being, hence our souls starve. Because it's just our performance that's being rewarded. Our soul, that part of us that's real and authentic, is still being ignored and starved. He says, until we can rest in a love and worth that attach to our being, who we are on the inside, not our performance on the outside, we will never know what it is like to live life out of fullness rather than emptiness. Then there's another behavior that's dysfunctional, and that's people-pleasing. People-pleasing. This arises out of the false belief that says, 
I must meet the certain approval, or I must have, rather, the certain approval of other people in my life in order to feel good about myself. Now, again, it's not bad to try to put the best foot forward, right? I mean, teens, you know that when you're dating, right? You don't belch on the first date. You know, you, you got to wait at least to the second or third date before you start belching in front of your person, you know. You comb your hair. I used to. You, you, you take a shower. You clean up. It's, no, it's okay, but the point is to live your life not being able to feel good about who you are unless you please people is a miserable way to live. These are the approval addicts. And by the way, the church loves these people because they don't really know what's driving them. They just know that these people are doing anything. You need somebody to clean the toilets, they're going to clean the toilets. You need somebody to scrub the floors, they're there. Because what is driving them, what is motivating them is not the love for God that wants them to be a servant. It's a trying to meet the standards or, the, or, the, or rather to gain the approval of other people so that they feel good about who they are. That's miserable. These people wear so many different faces that they forget which one's real. And they go through life that way, completely losing their identity. And then the last one is perfectionism. Now, perfectionism is a tough one. And underneath perfectionism is a lie that says that if I fail, if I fail or others fail, I am not deserving of love. I'm unworthy of love and I should be punished. So underneath that is this fear of failure, this fear of punishment. And so rather than deal with the pain of failure, I'll do anything to make sure. I'll go to the hundredth degree. I'll cross those T's. I'll dot those I's. If the assignment says, uh, you know, do a five-page summary, I'm going to do a ten-page summary, and it's going to be, I'm going to check and double-check and make sure. I mean, I, it's all about the perfection. Now, is it wrong to strive for excellence? No. But to be a perfectionist or to have a perfectionist orientation means you can't feel good about yourself if you're not perfect. And as far as I know, only one guy in all of human history has ever pulled that off. And his name is Jesus. So perfectionism is a, is a miserable way to live our lives. Now, how do we find healing? How do we find healing when we have this longing for significance and, and, a, and a longing for acceptance and belonging and it's not being met? I want you to get this. Healing comes... As we learn to experience being chosen by God. Now, I didn't say healing comes when we learn or when we learn about the information or the knowledge of being chosen by God. I said it comes when we experience being chosen by God. Greg Boyd said this, it's not so much what we intellectually believe is true that impacts us. It's what we experience as real. Let me say that again. It's not so much what we intellectually believe is true that impacts our lives. It's what we experience as real. Now think about that. That means somebody could come to this church week after week, Sunday after Sunday, sitting on an ABF, hear the gospel, hear all about Jesus Christ, learn they could, fill, they could write a paper on the knowledge that they gain and they learn about God and having a relationship with Jesus. But until they appropriate that and experience Jesus themselves, 
he never makes a difference in their lives. Every week they go home the same as they come. That's true for many of us as Christians. We, we have a relationship with Jesus, but we come week after week after week, and we fill up volumes and volumes and volumes of information, but because we never take the time to experience God in our lives, we're not transformed. We're the same. And so healing comes as we learn to experience being chosen by God. Dr. Terry Wardle is a professor at Ashland Theological Seminary. He says a quote that I just love. He says, long before you ever thought of inviting Jesus into your heart, he had already invited you into his. I want to say that again. Long before anyone in this room ever even thought about inviting Jesus into their hearts, he had already invited you into his. You see, you're chosen. You're spoken for. Chosen by Jesus Christ himself before the foundations of the world. A psychiatrist, a Christian psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson said, what would your life be like if you were completely aware of the Father's deep awareness and of pleasure in you throughout all of your waking hours? What would your life be like if you could live every waking hour in experiencing the awareness that he loves you, accepts you, and is pleased with you? How would that transform your life? Would there be guilt and condemnation? Would there be that sense of perfectionism that's driving you, that people-pleasing, that performance, performance orientation? Or could you finally throw all of that garbage off and just rest in the experience of being chosen by Jesus? You see, you're spoken for. You're already spoken for. There's a, three quick texts that I want to give to you today, and I'm just going to ask if you would just to write them down because I'm not going to stay there very long in each one. And you later go home and study this out for yourself. The first one's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and this is what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose, here we go, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us. Before the world was even created, he chose you. You were spoken for before the world was created. Now, it's very interesting in the Greek, and I am not a Greek scholar, uh, but I do have books. <laughs> and I read this, and it blew me away. So one Greek scholar says, that this word chose here is very interesting. It's a combination or it's a compound word. Two Greek words. Ek, E-K, ek, and lektos. Now, lektos is a derivative of the word lego. Not the legos that your kids build, but lego. So, ek, lektos. And it's derived from lego. And here's what it means. Ek means out of or forth from. Out of or forth from. Lego means to speak. So when you put it all together, it's to speak forth. Okay? So here's what Paul is saying. Translating it this way, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ, or God, rather, spoke us forth in Christ before the foundations of the world. Spoke us forth. What significance is that? Why is that significant? 
you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and read the account of creation. What is the first thing you see? And God said, and there was. You see, when God speaks, there's power. When God speaks, things happen. I'm tempted to throw out an E.F. Hutton joke here, but most of you kids wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. Some of the older folks like myself. Remember, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen, right? When God speaks, he doesn't just speak to have a conversation. When God speaks, not like you and I, you know, we have, uh, we get together with our friends, and, and, our, and my friends and I joke about this all the time, uh, and I'm not going to name Keith Ratliff's name because he'll get in trouble. Debbie will be upset with him, so I'm not going to mention his name. But we get together and we talk about the fact that after 10 or 15 minutes, we're out of words. We just sit there looking at each other like, dude, I got nothing left. I got nothing. And I'm like, well, I got nothing either. Why don't we just, hey, there's a remote. Just turn the TV on. Now we're good. The ladies will go into the kitchen or the dining room and they will talk. I don't know. I don't think that, I think if we didn't go get them, they'd still be there talking. And for them, they love it. It's relational. It's not about an information exchange. They're, they're loving each other. They're relating. Guys, we just want to exchange information, and we want to do it as quickly as we can. And if I'm on the phone, I just, I'm like, you know, I'm like Jack Friday from Dragnet, you know, just the facts. Just give me the facts. I want off this thing right now. See, when God speaks, it's not just to speak. When God speaks, it always equals an action. Let there be light, there was light. Let the earth and the seas be divided, and they were divided. Let the firmament above be separated from the ground below, and it was separated. God spoke forth. Do you get the picture? When God spoke forth, it happened. So listen, now get this connection. Before the foundations of the world was laid, God spoke you forth. He chose you in Jesus Christ to be blameless and holy in his sight. And all you have to do, you see, that's what Terry Wardle was saying. He's already chosen you. You're already in his heart. All you have to do is accept that and enter into that relationship. That's it. Yeah, sounds simple, sounds easy. Spoke forth. We are spoken for. The next text is in John chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, literally just before his arrest and and his death. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Listen to this. Jesus said, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go forth and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Do you get this? Listen, if you're struggling in your relationship with God, if you feel like there's something missing, there's something more you have to do, understand that you didn't choose him. He chose you. If Arnold Schwarzenegger was the terminator, Jesus was the initiator and the pursuer. And he's initiating and he has initiated a relationship with you and he's pursuing you relentlessly. 
They're like, well, you don't know my life, Jeff. You don't know the things I'm into. You don't know the things I've done. And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't matter. He is pursuing you. Now, he's not going to let you live your life and do what you want and think you can go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is regardless of what kind of lifestyle you're in right now, the great initiator and the great pursuer is pursuing you, calling you into relationship. He has chosen you. He has spoken you forth. And he longs for you to receive that which he is offering. And then finally in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, the very familiar story of the Jesus' baptism. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And by the way, in the Greek, the idea of heaven was opened was that heaven was literally torn open, like ripped open. Somehow it's like a seam in the heavens was literally just kind of ripped open. And God intrudes, so to speak, from that world into our world. So the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descends through that opening in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You see what God the Father is doing to Jesus Christ the Son? Jesus, theologians tell us, was 100% God, but he was also 100% man, human beings just like us. Jesus had lived 30 years in obscurity the son of a nameless, really, unknown carpenter living in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire, Galilee, Nazareth. And now, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down, rests upon him, and anoints him for his ministry. But before God sends him forth into ministry, what's the first thing he says? I have chosen you. You are my son, whom I love. In you I am well pleased. And next thing we read is, the Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness. For 40 days he is tempted by Satan, alone, no human companionship, no food for 40 days. I don't remember the last time I've gone four hours. 40 days without food, alone in the wilderness. Wild beasts, the scripture says, all around him. So there's dangers all around him. Satan himself tempting him. How do you think Jesus in his humanity was able to bear up under such incredible trial? Because the last words that he heard from his father that were still ringing in his ear was, you are my son whom I love. In you, I am well pleased. Because God spoke him forth. Because he was spoken for. He was chosen.
In his marvelous book, thank you, <laughs> I'm sorry, in his marvelous book, Letters to My Children, Daniel Taylor describes an experience he had in the sixth grade. Periodically, the students were taught how to dance. Thank God this kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. But the teacher would line up, a, line up the boys at the close of the classroom or at the door of the classroom to choose their partners. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of the girls waiting to be chosen. Wondering if they were going to be chosen. Wondering if they would be chosen by someone they didn't like. One girl, Mary, was always chosen last. Because of a childhood illness, one of her arms was drawn up and she had a bad leg. She wasn't very popular. The assistant teacher of Dan's class happened to attend his church And one day, she pulled Dan aside and said, Dan, next time we have dancing, I want you to choose Mary. Dan couldn't believe it. Why would anyone pick Mary when there was Linda, Shelly, or even Doreen? Dan's teacher told him it's exactly what Jesus would have done. And deep inside, he knew she was right, which didn't make it any easier. All Dan could hope for was that he would be last in line. That way, he could choose Mary to do the right thing, and no one would be the wiser. Instead, Dan was first in line. These are his words. The faces of the girls were turned toward me, some smiling. I looked at Mary and saw that she was only half turned to the back of the room. She knew no one would pick her first. Mr. Jenkins said, okay, Dan. Choose your partner. I remember feeling very far away. I heard my voice say, I choose Mary. Never has reluctant virtue been so richly rewarded. I still see her face undimmed in my memory. She lifted her head and on her face, reddened with pleasure and surprise and embarrassment all at once, was the most delightful and, I'm sorry, was the most genuine look of delight and even pride that I have ever seen before or since. It was so pure that I had to look away because I knew I didn't deserve it. Mary came and took my arm as we had been instructed, and she walked beside me, bad leg and all, just like a princess. Mary is my age now. I never saw her after that year. I don't know what her life's been like or what she's doing, but I'd like to think 
She has a fond memory of at least one day in the sixth grade. I know I do. You see, there was something or there was nothing Mary could do. She was chosen. And she was chosen first. Many of you this morning are like Mary. You've been wounded by life, scarred, and you're limping through life. Dragging your bad leg, holding your injured arm. But it's not the physical injuries of which we speak. It's the emotional and spiritual woundings that many of you have experienced. That like Mary, prevent you from accepting the chosenness of God. Prevent you from experiencing the reality of that relationship. Keeps you from experiencing and receiving the depth of the love that he wants to pour into you. This morning, while every head is bowed, every head bowed, eyes closed as Don plays softly, I want you to just think for a moment about your condition and where you are. Have you ever, ever initially received the fact of your chosenness in God? Have you accepted Christ into your heart? even though he's already accepted you into his? What about some of you who are Christians? You've been Christians for years, but there are things in your past, things in your life that are unresolved. Hurt, wounds, anger, resentment, unforgiveness, things you've never been able to get past, things you've never been able to let go of. Listen, it's those very things that are robbing you, robbing you of the joy to be found in your chosenness, you are spoken for. He has spoken you forth, and he longs to embrace you. He is pursuing you, and he wants to heal you this morning. So I'm just going to ask, right where you're seated, to invite Jesus to touch those places in your heart that need to be healed. Maybe it's a memory. Maybe it's somebody Someone, some, someone in the church perhaps, or churches that have injured you and hurt you so badly. I, I'm asking that you just allow Jesus to touch that place in you right now. If you've never opened your heart to him for the first time, do that. Open your heart and invite him in this morning. While Don sings. <laughs> 